Welcome to Pages from Before, a podcast which reviews the history of American states as recorded in our local newspapers. My name is Creighton Olson, and each week I'll travel through four pieces of one state's history, written in 1870, 1920, 1970, and 1995. Join me live on Twitch for recording and discussions every Thursday, or just catch the podcast later wherever you listen. So, pull up a chair around your telegraph, radio, television, or browser, and let's read some pages from before. Welcome back to Pages from Before. This is our second full episode covering the state of Pennsylvania. As always, I have got four new stories here, plus a bonus at the end of the episode, uh, covering four different periods in American history. Our first story today comes to us from the Daily Evening Telegraph, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The date is Wednesday, April 27th, 1870, and the title of our first episode, uh, pardon me, the title of our first article is A New Horror. A new horror. Wholesale homicide. Two men killed by a policeman at an early hour this morning. Both sides of the affair. The officer justifies himself as acting in self-defense. His statement of the encounter. Versions of the deadly affair as given by eyewitnesses. The misery wrought by the demon alcohol is every day increasing, and scarce an hour of short space of time allotted to man passes, but some deed of degradation is committed. This morning, we are called upon to record the sudden taking off of two human beings, two unprepared souls who had as yet but barely entered into the battle of life, and all through that bane of thousands, liquor. At number 1331 North 2nd Street resides a family by the name of Walsh. One of their number, a son named James, aged about 23 years and a plasterer by trade, after returning from his daily labor yesterday, spent some time in cultivating a miniature garden which he had formed in a small enclosure called a yard in the rear of his parents' house. He continued working therein until it became almost dark when he entered the house, changed his clothing, and started out to obtain some little recreation. About the time that he left home, seven and one-half o'clock, a young man named Murtaugh, aged 22 years, whose parents reside at number 2006 North 5th Street, returned from Germantown, where he had spent the day in doing some laboring work. The young man Murtaugh, at the age of 16, enlisted in the 173rd New York Regiment under the alias of John Morrissey, he, desiring the army, and using an alias to prevent his removal therefrom by his father, who was opposed to his enlisting. He served honorably through the war, and after being discharged, returned home. His parents state that he had not done much work since his return, but had just received employment in Germantown, and he and they were mutually joyous over the fact. After disposing of the meal prepared for him by his mother, he cleansed himself and sallied out for some enjoyment. Where he went or where he spent the evening, it is not now known. But be that as it may, the fact is patent that he met with Walsh, and both succeeded, as all parties admit, in becoming thoroughly intoxicated. Some time after midnight, they brought up in the neighborhood of 3rd and Montgomery Avenue, and by their noise and carousings, annoyed the whole neighborhood. 
the locality is none of the best. It is the boundary between the 17th and 19th wards, and is infested by a gang of young men who are as desperate as they are devilish in their characters. Third Street, at this point, is occupied by a number of Irish families of the lower class, who, in their ignorance, screen instead of expose the misdoings of the youths that there congregate. They think that because they are all Democrats, that therefore Democratic policemen should not interfere with them, and as a consequence, whenever the officers attempt to arrest any offender, they meet with opposition, and oftentimes, encounter danger. This beat, too, is what termed a double beat, extending from Oxford to Beach Street, and from 2nd to 6th Street. For some time past, it has been in charge of officers Patrick Levy and Charles Max of the 11th District Force, both of whom are said to be exemplary men. Last night, Max was left in sole charge of the beat on account of the death of Levy's father in New York, and whither Levy had gone. About a quarter of one o'clock this morning, Max heard a terrible rumpus while standing at the corner of Montgomery Avenue and 3rd Street, and supposing it to come from Germantown Road, he at once ran in that direction. He soon found, however, that he was leaving the sound, and he returned, intending to cross over to American Street. On passing 3rd Street, he looked down and saw two parties apparently squabbling. He approached them, and in attempting to arrest one of them, a scuffle ensued which resulted in his drawing his revolver and shooting both. He did not at the time know either of them, but they soon too proved to be the two young men mentioned in our opening. After the shooting, they were removed into the house of Edward McDermott, on whose pavement the affray occurred. Murtaugh died instantly, but Walsh lingered about an hour. The parents of the deceased, being notified, the bodies were removed to their respective residences. The following is Policeman Charles Max's statement. On receiving news of the tragedy, Chief Mulholland, who was at the central station, directed Lieutenant Pritchard to report immediately in person. After consultation, Detective Gordon was sent up to work up the case, and he repaired to the 11th District Station, where he took a statement from Policeman Max, which was substantially as follows. He was patrolling his beat alone, and at a quarter before one o'clock he reached 3rd and Oxford Streets. There he heard a great noise as of people fighting. He ran towards Germantown Road, thinking that the trouble was in that neighborhood. But the farther he went, the farther the noise seemed to be. He then retraced his steps, and on again reaching 3rd Street, saw two men just below Columbia Avenue facing each other. One of them seemed to have a revolver in his hand, pointing it at the other. At this time, a woman from overhead exclaimed, It's about time you got here to stop this business. He replied, You can't expect me to be here and in all parts of my beat at the same time, and approached the two men, whom he ordered away, telling them that this noise must be stopped. They still remained and said something to him. He again ordered them away, and, not complying, seized one and told him to come with him. The other then approached toward him and was told not to interfere. Still pressing forward, Max let go his hold on the other one and seized him. Then his first prisoner showed a disposition to interfere, and he was warned away. He replied he wouldn't interfere, but on arriving up 3rd Street near Montgomery, approached Max and struck him in the face, and then seized Max by the shirt collar which he twisted. Max was compelled to release his hold on his prisoner, who immediately seized Max by the legs, and he was thrown to the pavement. While lying there, struggling with the men, Max was kicked several times about the body. He finally released himself and on regulating his feet, seized one of them by the coat, and was again rushed upon, when he noticed the other, that if he dared again to approach him, 
he would shoot. He came toward him, when he drew his revolver and fired two shots. Both of them fell to the pavement. Max then ran to 4th and Burke's streets, where seeing a strange policeman, he called to him to come down the street, as he had been compelled to shoot two men. Max and his brother policeman ran down to the scene and found the two men gone. He required of several people who had their heads out of the windows which direction the two men had gone, and received an answer, One of them is here. He applied for admission and was refused. He then directed the policeman to remain there while he could obtain the assistance of other policemen. On reaching Burke Street, he came across Policeman Bird, whose beat adjoined that of Max. They returned to the locality and were again refused admission. Max then reported to Lieutenant Pritchard at the station the particulars of the affray. He was directed to patrol the beat of Bird, whom he was to notify to hunt up the particulars. Shortly after, he returned to the station and delivered himself into custody, stating that both of the men were dead. He was then placed in custody and is present at the 11th District Station. The Other Side As in all similar cases, there are two sides of the story to be told. This morning we visited the locality, and after some little search succeeded in finding Mrs. McDonough, who refused to give any information. Whilst standing at the door of her residence, a lad picked up a collar supposed to have belonged to the officer, which was much rumpled and showed a piece of the handle of a pair of nippers, thus showing that there had been evidence of a severe struggle. We next visited the residence of Murtaugh, and from his father obtained the following as the substance of a statement made by Edward McDonough. I was awakened by a noise in the street, and raising the window, I saw the officer trying to arrest Walsh, Murtaugh told him. Murtaugh told Walsh to go with the officer and advanced toward the ladder. The officer shouted to Murtaugh not to come close to him or he would shoot. Murtaugh replied, I am going to help you. I then shouted to the officer not to shoot, if he was not able to take his prisoner to spring his rattle. The officer replied, I have no rattle. Just then, the officer fired, and Murtaugh fell. Myself, my wife, and daughter then rushed downstairs and found that both men were shot. We then carried both into my house, and Walsh died in a short time. Just before the shot was fired, I heard someone of the two say, You shouldn't take us. We are all Democrats like yourself. I did not see either the officer or the deceased on the ground at any time. As is usual in such cases, a bitter feeling exists to the prejudice, to the prejudice of the officer, some alleging that he should not have shot both, and others that he should not have shot either. The full facts of the case will be brought out at the coroner's inquest, which will take place tomorrow. Dr. Shapley will make the post-mortem examination today. The wounds. Both the young men were shot in the breast, one on the right side and the other on the left. And there you have it. Some crime news from the Wednesday, April 27th, 1870 edition of the Daily Evening Telegraph. This story came to you on page 8 of the paper. We move now to, I believe, what is our first sports story of the entire podcast. Uh, like I said, normally uh, I try to stay away from very depressing sort of modern crime and war news, unless it seems to have a significant historical importance or, uh, or it's a really interesting story, uh, such as the last one, which I think gives a really good view 
into, you know, just what America was like in 1870. But now we move on to a story from 1920 with a little bit more pep, cheer, and overall Americana. It comes today from the Philadelphia Evening Public Ledger. The date is Friday, July 2nd, 1920. The title is Mayor Won't Stop Sunday Baseball If For Recreation. Mayor Won't Stop Sunday Baseball If For Recreation. Executive refuses to heed minister's plea to halt Sabbath sports. Warns against rowdyism and commercial games. Tells delegation working man must have some diversion. Points to autos. Mayor Moore will not forbid Sunday baseball games or other sports when they are indulged in merely as recreation, he informed a delegation of ministers today. The mayor impressed upon his visitors, however, that he would not tolerate rowdyism or commercialism at Sunday ball games. This was his reply to a demand that he enforce the law of 1793 against Sunday sports and have the police prevent all Sunday ball games. The demand was made by a committee of five clergymen representing the ministerial union, headed by the Reverend J. M. S. Eisenberg. The committee was ushered into the mayor's private office shortly after 11 o'clock and were there for more than an hour. Dr. Eisenberg, as chief spokesman, made a vigorous plea for the enforcement of the old Sabbath laws. Sunday baseball is organized and commercialized more this year than ever before, he asserted. This city should obey the laws of the state. Mr. Moore interjected. Some of the Methodist preachers are ball players, aren't they? I see their pictures in the newspaper. Dr. Eisenberg replied the ministers were not opposed to baseball, except when it was played on Sunday. When do you want the people to play? asked Mr. Moore. The ministerial spokesperson rejoined that the people could play in the evening after they had returned from work. Question Noise The great question with me, asserted the mayor, is whether these people should be housed in alleys under unpleasant conditions where they can't sleep with the noise at night. I am speaking from a humanitarian standpoint. I wish the churches were more potential, continued the mayor. Some of them are struggling for existence. The whole world is changing. You would have a difficult time if you attempted to stop women from dancing, for example. Only this morning, Director Furbush of the Health Department said that baseball is one of the most necessary health measures. I am prepared for newspaper criticism, which is beginning. But I am not going to check the people in their ordinary rights if I can help it. The mayor pointed out that when the Sabbath laws were passed, automobiles, continued on page two, Automobiles, baseball games, trolley, and even bathtubs were unknown. It seems almost absurd, he continued, to burden people of this generation with the conditions of 1794. Occupations are different, yet today we are expected to abide by this law. If this statute were enforced, literally, we would not be able to run a trolley car on the street. I say to you, gentlemen of the cloth, that I know clergymen who ride in their automobiles on Sunday solely for the purpose of recreation. Says wealthy play golf. The wealthy play golf on their estates or drive their automobiles on Sunday. Now, if you ask the poor people to stay in the alleys, you are going to create unrest that has a tendency to make the country unsafe. The mayor said under modern conditions, it is impossible to live up to the old Sabbath law. He pointed to Sunday work in newspaper officers as an example. 
When he asked Dr. Eisenberg why an effort had not been made to modify the law of 1794, the clergyman replied the only attempt in that direction had been made by the motion picture interests. The majority of people don't want the law changed, Dr. Eisenberg contended. The cities might want it changed, but the rural districts would not stand for it. I heard on reliable authority, continued Dr. Eisenberg, that Senator Penrose remarked he would not attempt to have the law changed, and that the moral sentiment would be against it. That is the act of a politician, countered the mayor, who is looking on all sides for attacks. I am here to do what is right, and don't care to check helpful, lawful diversions. I will not do it to bludgeon people into the churches. Against Commercialized Games I do not intend to stand for commercialized baseball, he continued. I will make some quick changes in the police force if I find out they are allowing rowdyism at baseball games. No orders except to see that vice and crime are supposed to have been issued by me. But I will not use the police to persecute the people when they indulge in helpful sports. Other members of the committee were the Reverend William Bamford, C.W. Ligat, W.L. McCormick, and Groves W. Drew. Dr. Bamford told the mayor Sunday baseball games were drawing boys away from Sunday school. The Ministerial Union's resolution, which created the committee, criticized the mayor for alleged laxity in enforcement of the Sunday laws. I can't say I approved your resolution, nor the manner in which it was passed, remarked Mr. Moore. He added that in his belief, automobiles were as much responsible for decrease in church attendance as Sunday games. So, dear listeners, what do you think? Has your automobile been drawing you away from Sunday attendance, or is it those Sunday morning baseball games that are drawing you away from the church more? (laughs) Clearly, in 1920, the concern of people leaving churches was very real. Note that on this page of the Evening Public Ledger, there's a massive photo of the first Democratic convention at San Francisco. Wow, it's beautiful. Uh, If you have the chance... Do look up this paper and take a look at what's going on. It's, uh, it's some gorgeous photography. With that, we'll go ahead and move on to our third story of the episode. From sports to science as we move on to our 1970 article. This article comes to us from the Pittsburgh Press, Sunday, March 1st, 1970. And the headline reads, Eclipse to Stage, quote, Darkness at Noon by Dolores Frederick press science writer. An eclipse of the sun will sweep over the United States this Saturday, darkening Savannah, Georgia, Charleston, South Carolina, Norfolk, Virginia, and Nantucket Island, Massachusetts. But Pittsburghers will have to settle for a partial eclipse because the district is outside the 85-mile-wide total eclipse path. The eclipse will begin in western Pennsylvania at 12.17 p.m. as it works from the South Pacific to the Atlantic Ocean. The moon in the southern skies will slowly begin to cover the sun, traveling southwest to northeast. The eclipse is scheduled to reach its peak here at 1.34 p.m. Black Mass It will appear as a black mass somewhat larger than a three-quarter moon. Only 86.7% of the sun will be darkened. At 2.48 p.m., the sky show will conclude as the eclipse moves to New England. Although astronomers call the eclipse a spectacular event, it should not be viewed directly because it could result in blindness. Eyelids can only filter out so much of the sun's rays, said Dr. Philip Grana, an ophthalmologist at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. 
words of caution. He said viewers should avoid sunglasses, smoked glass, darkened photographic film, colored glasses, and welder's lenses to directly observe the solar eclipse. It will be dark, he said, but there will be enough harmful rays to destroy eye tissues. He also urged backyard astronomers not to look at the eclipse through binoculars and telescopes or to take pictures of the sun with a camera. Some astronomers say even a few seconds of viewing can cause damage, particularly on a spot on the retina called the mascula. It is a tiny point, about the size of the tip of a needle, that gives humans their sharpest vision. What Dr. Grana suggests for watching the eclipse is the box camera method, using two pieces of white cardboard. This works by punching a hole in the middle of one cardboard with a pencil or sharp instrument, and holding that cardboard over another to focus the image of the moon as it passes over the sun. Full Audience Dr. Grana said he is especially concerned about people viewing the eclipse because it will occur around noon on a Saturday, when almost everybody will be off for the weekend. He said there were 247 reported cases of visual damage during the last total eclipse in the U.S. in July 1963, and it was total only in Maine and Alaska. This one will be visible to more people, he said, pointing to reports of eye damage in London following a partial eclipse there in May 1966. Best until 2014. Even so, astronomers are hoping for clear weather Saturday to study the eclipse, although many of their, them are traveling to Norfolk, Virginia, where it will be total. This will be the best eclipse in the U.S. until 2014, said Paul Olez, acting director of planetarium programs at Buell Planetarium. However, he said Pittsburgh never has, nor will it ever, experience a total eclipse through the 21st century. He explained that, We're in one of those locations which does not fall in the shadow cast by the moon in its eclipse orbit. Pittsburgh even outsmarted statistics which say a particular place will witness a total solar eclipse on the average of once in 350 years. At least two a year. Each year there are always at least two, and as many as five, solar eclipses as the moon passes at least partially in front of the sun. The diameter of the sun is 400 times greater than that of the moon, and the sun is about 400 times farther from the earth than the moon. That's why the moon appears as big as the sun. The only other total eclipse which will be visible in the United States during the 20th century will be on February 26, 1979. It will cross over the extreme northwest United States, central Canada, and Hudson Bay. Unfortunately, James Mullaney, a curator of exhibits and astronomy at Buell Planetarium said, it will barely be visible in Pittsburgh. A sky show at Buell Planetarium will run through March 24th to show what happens during the eclipse. There won't be any problems with eye damage at the planetarium. It will be on film. So there you have it. A partial eclipse barely viewable in Pittsburgh here, accompanied by photos of Paul Olez from the Buell Planetarium, as well as uh, an over-the-shoulder viewing demonstration by Dr. Philip Grana, uh, the ophthalmologist quoted in the article. So uh, very interesting stuff there. No full eclipses until 2014. I vaguely recall that total eclipse being a big deal when it did happen in 2014, six years uh, before the recording of this podcast. Well, that's going to do it there from 1970, uh, Sunday, March 1st, from the Pittsburgh Press. And that will bring us to our 1995 article from this episode.
From Baseball to Science and Science to Technology, the 1995 article from the Philadelphia Inquirer Business Section, Section C, comes to us from Wednesday, March 1st, 1995. Uh, Some of you will be familiar with the content of this article. Uh, I thought it was a good one, even though it's not local. I thought it was a really good one to capture sort of uh, what was going on at the time uh, in 1995. The headline reads, Software Rival Complains of Cold Shoulder from Microsoft. Tribune Co. has a computerized encyclopedia. It won't be part of Microsoft's new online service. This article by Evan Ramstad from the Associated Press, New York. In the latest thrust at Microsoft Corporation, officials of a large software company made an unusual public complaint yesterday that Microsoft Corp. won't allow them on its online service because they make a rival electronic encyclopedia. The charge adds to the list of gripes about the allegedly anti-competitive practices at the largest developer of personal computer software, and it raises questions of how Microsoft can both develop products for its electronic pipeline and encourage others to do so. Responding to the latest accusations, the head of the Microsoft service denied that his company had refused to work with the new media division of Tribune Co., which created the computerized versions of Compton's encyclopedia. Microsoft sells its own computerized encyclopedia called Encarta and plans to make it a standard feature of its new online service, the Microsoft Network, which is to be in operation later this year. The charge came at a conference attended by more than 500 representatives of publishers, media outlets, nonprofit organizations, and other companies interested in developing products for its online systems. Quote, In no way, shape, or form are we going to block content providers from getting on the Microsoft network because they compete with some other part of Microsoft, end quote, said Russ Siegelman, the company's general manager of online services. But Elliot DeHaan, vice president of strategic alliances for Compton's Tribune New Media, described the rejection Microsoft handed him last week. Quote, I was told they viewed my encyclopedia as competitive to Encarta, and they weren't really interested in putting it on the network, end quote. Don said, The exchange spurred leaders of the three largest online services, appearing on a panel with Siegelman, to repeat charges that have been made for months that Microsoft was being unfair. The charges come at a bad time for Microsoft. Two weeks ago, a federal judge rejected the settlement of antitrust charges the company worked out in July with the Justice Department. Since then... Apple Computer Inc. has publicly accused Microsoft of bullying tactics. Microsoft plans to provide easier access on its software to its online service than to rivals such as America Online, CompuServe, and Prodigy. Is the level playing field made by crushing the other buildings down? Asked Scott Kernett, president of Prodigy Services Company. Stiegelman responded by noting that companies in many businesses use distribution capabilities to promote new products, such as magazines, that include subscription cards for sister publications. The Dow Jones is up 22.48 points for a total of a Dow Jones of 4,011.05. Treasury bonds' 30-year yield is down to 7.44%. This has been Business News from the Philadelphia Inquirer, Wednesday, March 1st. 1995. That's going to mark the end of the four official readings uh, from this podcast covering 1870, 1920, 1970, and of course 1995. We have gone from a brutal double murder to uh, Mayor 
defending Sunday baseball, to a science article about an eclipse, and then this very brief article about Microsoft, uh, maybe potentially having some anti uh, antitrust operations in place. We're going to go on now to one final episode. I usually get to do a bonus episode or bonus article every week uh, from an ep- from an article that I found that was just too good to not be included. So with that, we'll move on to our bonus article from 1920. I'm a big fan of classical music, so anytime I see a classical music article, it always behooves me to at least read it. And this one particularly uh, gave me quite a chuckle, so I thought I would share it as our bonus article from today. This article comes to us from the uh, Philadelphia Evening Public Ledger. The date on the article is uh, Monday, September 20th, 1920. The headline reads as thus. Stokowski couldn't fool shrewd customs officer. That's a good one, man laughed when told music would be, quote, produced, not sold. Dr. Leopold Stokowski, conductor of the Philadelphia Orchestra, was mistaken for a smuggler of foreign music when he encountered the customs officials upon his arrival in New York from Europe last week. Dr. Stokowski, who arrived on the Olympic after having toured Europe in search of new music, brought a large number of scores representing new works, some of them composed since the war, which he intends to give a first hearing during the concerts here this winter. The new works, which Dr. Stokowski said represent the latest musical thought in Europe, were packed in 17 large boxes. Arrived at the pier in New York, Dr. Stokowski was held up by a customs inspector, who surveyed the 17 boxes with suspicion. "'What's in them boxes?' sniffed the inspector. "'That's some music which I brought over with me,' said Dr. Stokowski. "'What are you going to do with it?' persisted the inspector. "'I'm going to produce it here in this country,' returned the conductor. "'That's a good one,' laughed the inspector harshly. "'I guess you're going to sell it. "'Well, you can't put anything like that over on me. "'I've heard this line before.' At this point... An inspector happened along who was an ardent music lover. He had attended concerts of the orchestra with Dr. Stokowski conducting and recognized him. The situation was explained to him, and the boxes containing the new music were saved for public presentation. And with the case of smuggling that's been solved by those crack inspectors, that is going to bring us to the end of Pages from Before, the Pennsylvania edition. A special thanks this week to all of the papers that we've pulled the articles from, as well as the Chronicling Americas Project, which has helped us uh, to find many of these articles with great ease. Pages from Before is written, produced, and voice acted by Creighton Olson, and you can follow us on Twitter, at Pages from Before. Join us next week, where we kick off our New Jersey episode with a rousing 4th of July celebration article. Thank you so much for joining us on our journey to review these pages from before.